So Money Episode 786, Dr. Peter Kim, anesthesiologist and founder of Passive Income MD. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. In the Iranian culture, if your child becomes a doctor, you're basically parent of the year. And while being a doctor comes with a great deal of integrity and pride and responsibility, the income is not as great as it once was when you factor in things like student loans and the cost of living. And as our guest today will explain, many physicians are not equipped with the financial know-how of managing their money and growing wealth. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Dr. Peter Kim is our guest, and he is an anesthesiologist and real estate and passive income expert. You know, last I checked, being an anesthesiologist was one of the highest paid tracks in medicine, one of the highest paid careers in general. So what motivated Peter to rethink his profession? For years, Peter blogged anonymously at PassiveIncomeMD.com about his personal exploration into real estate as a side hustle. He also runs the real estate company CurbsideRealEstate.com to help educate doctors about the home buying process. Did you know there's a thing called a physician's home loan? Well, Peter has recently lifted the veil on his site to share his name and go public with the details of his personal life to the thousands of readers he's cultivated over the past years. Today, Peter says he's a physician by choice, as well as an avid real estate investor. Here's Dr. Peter Kim. Dr. Peter Kim, welcome to So Money. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yes, I've been really excited to talk to you. We had discussed bringing you on the show earlier, but that was when you were still anonymous, an anonymous <laughs> blogger, founder of Passive, Passive Income MD. You've recently lifted the veil. How does it feel to be exposed? Uh, it feels great. I mean, I don't know why I didn't do this earlier. Um, I was really, I don't know. I don't know why I was so scared. But now that I'm out there, I mean, it's really opened the world up to me to kind of interact with people, meet the community, kind of really help build the community that I wanted to build. We're going to talk about that community of physicians who, uh, to use your words, um, they're overworked, underpaid. And, and you were telling me earlier before we were on the call that your media reports say that doctors are leaving the industry because they're just burned out. And that's a terrible thing. And what you're hopefully I think your mission is to help them find other revenue streams, ideally passive, so they can continue to pursue medicine. Your story started with becoming an anesthesiologist. And tell us about, I think, the irony there, which is like anesthesiology is a really, I mean, we hear that it's a lucrative path that amongst mm -hmm. all the different paths in medicine, it's it's well-paying. It's actually one of the top paid <laughs> jobs we see on all the lists every year yeah. in general. Um, but this was a struggle for you. Tell us why. First, let's start there. What was the problem with being an anesthesiologist? No, I mean, it's a great profession. I, I love it. In fact, I still continue to do it because I, I love my job. 
Um, in fact, uh, I chose a job because it seemed like they were the happiest people in the hospital, to be honest with you. Um, the thing is I, I learned early on that even as an anesthesiologist, you're just not in control of your career. Um, you know, reimbursements change, insurance changes, your job changes, the economy changes and these kind of things. And so I realized I'm, I'm really not in control. Things were, things were happening where my friends were, um, that came out of training with me, their groups would get bought out by maybe their private equity group or, you know, by another hospital. And then they were told, look, you're going to get a 30% pay cut or you find another job. And, you know, they were left with these kind of situations and I was seeing it happening around me. And I, I started freaking out a little bit because I was like, you know, this is, I'm not in control here. I mean, I have a, you know, set hope plan for the future where I'm going to be in terms of my finances. And, you know, I, I can't control that on my own. So now I've got to figure something else out. And that's kind of where I started on this whole journey of trying to figure out, okay, where else can I make an income? How can I produce some, yeah, how can I create these other multiple sources of income and maybe create the life and career that I want? I mean, again, the goal was to stay in medicine. It was never to leave medicine. It was just to give some relief from other places. Yes, yeah, so a allow breathing me to practice. room. Yeah, yeah, it's a breathing room so I could practice how I wanted to. Um, I mean, you know, I think most of us who became physicians became so because they love it. I mean, they wanted to help people. They want to have this nice career. There's, you know, some element of respect and feeling good about what you do. And, you know, I've heard it said that, you know, physicians, it's such a long journey. So it's not just the career that you do. It's really like who you become and who you are. And so I, I didn't want to lose that. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are some financial pressures and these kind of things. So I really try to remedy that. You wrote on your website, uh, that you, as you were describing this journey, that you didn't have the best financial habits. You yeah. had poor spending <laughs> habits. You had just kind of emerged from credit card debt that was lingering from college as now a, a professional. And then you also invested like gambling. You kind of just tried to <laughs> yeah. strike, you know, you, you took a lot of bets. And what was it that uh, got you a little more acclimated and together, so to speak, with your finances? What, how did you get there? Yeah, I was, um, my, my father's a physician and uh, I mean, he worked really hard, worked really, really hard, provided for the family, but he, he never really taught us about finances. He never taught us about, you know, how to budget, uh, credit card debt, interest, investments. These kind of things were never really part of our household conversations. And so I went to college and I don't know, you go to those college fairs and people have you sign up for like free credit cards for like T-shirts and, and things like that. Oh, man, I was all over that stuff. And, you know, and I was like, oh, man, you can uh, just use this credit card and just kind of buy things and, you know, just kind of pay it off in payments over time. Oh, this is awesome. And so uh, I, have, <laughs> I had credit cards left and right, racked up a ton of debt, carried it all throughout, you know, into med school. Uh, and then I met my wife. <laughs> a future wife at that time. And, you know, we were talking about finances and she's like, what you, you don't pay off your credit cards every month, you know, or do this or you keep debt. And I was like, yeah, isn't that what you, I mean, that's what everybody does. Uh -huh. And she kind of told me, all right, no, 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 this is what I do. This is what our family does. And it kind of got me thinking, all right, maybe I'm not doing this right. <laughs> and, uh, there definitely was some stress every month as, as the bill started rolling around. And then, uh, eventually throughout med school, I started reading some books on finances. And by the time I finished med school, uh, I, I took a year off in between my residency, well, after my first year of residency, and I worked for a year. And I worked really hard, and what I did that whole year was I dedicated myself to paying off all my debt. 
So that's what I was able to do. And once I kind of reached that point, I realized, man, this is great. I mean, this is, this feels good. And this is probably what I should have been doing the whole time. And then I just started trying to educate myself more on the topic. And uh, little by little, I got better at it. And real estate became the thing, you, the real interest, intrigue, passion. And yet this was also something that you knew nothing about, but you were your interest had been peaked. I guess you, I understand you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, yeah. and he talks a lot about leveraging um, real estate to build wealth. And so talk about your foray into real estate. Now, of course, you run a company and you're curbside real estate that helps physicians and other healthcare professionals buying their residential homes. Didn't know that was a niche, but you found it. Yeah, and like yeah. That's very fascinating too. We'll get to that. But when you got into real estate in the beginning, what, what did you uh, latch onto for guidance? And how did you get involved in real estate in the beginning? Yeah. I, 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 somebody, somebody turned me on to that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I, again, to this day, I wish I knew who that was because I owe that person a lot. Um, and in that book, it kind of, kind of opened my world to think, all right, you've got to figure out a way to unlink your time from your compensation. I mean, if you're just an hourly worker, then you'll never really gain that financial freedom and life freedom that you're looking for. And so it got me thinking along that path. And, you know, I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to get there. He talks a lot about real estate, but I was like, oh, I don't even know much about it. And then it's funny because in my own life, you know, once I met my father-in-law, um, he's an anesthesiologist as well. And I saw the life he was living and he was living a pretty good life. I mean, he looked, uh, I mean, they would go on, they would travel quite a bit. He would kind of give up time to, to, to do the things he wanted to do. And, you know, as he was getting closer to retirement, you know, he was also a physician just like my father, but they were going totally different places. I mean, he was just comfortable with his retirement. He was good set. And I started asking him, what do you, what did you do? And he said, look, I just got into real estate. I just started buying uh, property here, property there. And over time, eventually it started creating all this cash flow for me in terms of passive income. And honestly, I could have stopped working 10, 15 years ago. And then I looked at my father who, you know, really worked really hard, but really didn't invest very well or invest at all. And, you know, he got to the end of his career and, and really, he wasn't really sure how he was going to be able to you know, support himself during retirement. He didn't really have the, those, uh, those sources of cash flow. And so it was kind of like the rich dad, poor dad playing out in my own life. And yeah, uh, I was like, okay, well, if there's one person I want to emulate when it comes to that is my father-in-law. So I started really reaching out to him to find out more about real estate. And yeah, little by little, started with one property, started with two properties, reading about the, the topic. And yeah, I mean, it's led to, led to so many different things. You um, got interested in crowdfunding, real estate crowdfunding. Tell us a little bit about that, that we don't talk a lot about that on the show, but I, I've come across it myself. I've been interested, but you tell me from the trenches, is this worth, who should do this and how does it work? <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote a little, a little post on, on my favorite real estate crowdfunding site, some, you know, on, on the website. It's something that I, I just ran into by accident about four or five years ago, when the industry was just starting out, I was at one of these real estate investor meetings and I happened to meet the CEO or the founder of one of these companies. And, you know, at that time I had been interested in, you know, finding different ways to invest in real estate besides just owning your own home. Uh, maybe I didn't have the full funds to be able to do so, but I wanted to get involved, maybe, um, you know, lend out some money, be the bank for once and lend out some money to some people that were trying to do some projects or get involved in some of these syndications. But a lot of times before 
the Jobs Act that that came out during the Obama administration, you had to know somebody personally. You had to like kind of be connected into that world to find these deals. But once crowdfunding came about, it kind of opened up the world, uh, opened up this world to, I guess, the standard investor and kind of put it out there on the web, on the internet, so people could find and get access to these deals. And so that's really what it is. Um, it's just people are trying to raise money for their deals, whether they're trying to get some money together to do a fix and flip. And so they need to lend some, you know, borrow some money or whether they're, you know, buy an apartment building and they want to kind of raise money and have people buy shares of it. These kind of things are now available online for you to at least, you know, vet the deals and kind of gain access to it. And I think it's a fascinating world. I think it's opened the world, these kind of private investments to a, a lot of investors. And most of the time you do have to be an accredited investor, which is a good thing, I think. But tell us, how much money can we really make? Yeah, that, I think that depends on the type of deal that you uh, get involved in. I mean, a lot of the debt deals where you borrow, where you lend money and they kind of borrow it from you as the bank, oftentimes you can get anywhere from 7 to 10% interest paid on that. Uh, the cool thing is it's collateralized, meaning that, you know, if they don't pay, you have to foreclose right. on them. You actually get the property. The cool thing is what? these platforms. Yeah. The, well, the platforms take care of it for you. Uh, but you're one of many investors. So how does that you're work one out? Of, yeah. So you're in an, you're like in an LLC. So you're a minority, you're, you're a minority investor. So you have share in it. Um, but the platform takes care of it for you, which is kind of nice. And so, uh, if that, if that does happen and knock on wood, it hasn't happened to me yet. Uh, at least, you know, you have an asset at the end of the day that can be sold and you can, you know, regain some of your, your money back. If not actually make a gain. Um, so there's those deals, but so it seems a little low stake. It's relative to maybe like, I don't know, lending money through other crowdfunding sites where they're going to use that to go and start a business. Yeah. Or like a peer to peer site where there's no collateral. Yeah. Like a, like a lending club or prosper. And, um, you know, I've invested in those as well, but you know, those people are necessarily, maybe they're paying off their credit card debt. And the worst thing that happens to them, if they don't pay off their debt, you know, they got to dig on their credit. But in this case, there's an actual property that's collateralized here. And so that's part of your whole assessment. When you look at the, you know, when you look at the deal, you want to see what kind of property are you actually investing in? What's the loan to value or, you know, what can the market bear when you if you had to go ahead and sell it, uh, which you don't have to. The platform will take care of it for you. But that's that's these debt deals. And there's these equity deals, too, where you actually are participating not only in, uh, you know, you get some interest along the way. But when they actually sell the property, you actually get a portion of the profits as well. So there obviously there's there's a greater profit there potential. And so some of these honestly can be up to 15 to 20 percent. security Fortune 500 companies use. They need to know police are going to be on the scene immediately. This is exactly the kind of security you get with Simply Safe. If there's a break-in, they use real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime. And that means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. With Simply Safe, you get comprehensive protection for your home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching your house. Entry motion and glass break sensors guard inside. Plus, Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, carbon monoxide poisoning, and it's all monitored 24-7 by live security professionals. You can set it up yourself with no tools needed, or they can do it for you, and it's only 50 cents a day with no contracts. 
Visit simplysafe.com slash so money. You'll get free shipping and a 60 day risk free trial. Be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash so money so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash so money. Wow. All right. I'm, I'm definitely going to consider this now because, you know, everybody knows I'm obsessed with real estate and I don't really have the capacity to go and invest in something out of state or even out of city. But uh, this might be a way to do it kind of uh, with with lower stakes and less time. Yeah. Well, lower stakes because also the limits are lower. I mean, I, right. I, did my, I did my first investment in a crowdfunding deal for five thousand dollars. Mm. And I, I don't know how else you can get involved in real estate in a lot of ways for, for that amount. And so, I mean, I was scared. I mean, I was scared. When I, How much has that produced for you? That five thousand dollar investment? Uh, that was a that was a twelve percent annual interest wow. rate. So I got a twelve percent on that for that year, and then it it closed. You got a return of capital, and I was able to move it elsewhere. Um, but you know, some of these now uh, the market's changed a little bit, and so now I think it's uh, you'll see it closer somewhere to about seven eight percent. Cool. Uh, there's risk. I mean, there's definitely risk sure. there. You have to vet these deals out properly. I don't tell people just go ahead and throw it in any of these deals. You have to learn how to read, you know, some of these, uh, offerings and, and know what you're getting yourself into and definitely don't put money in there that you, that you need right away. Cause it, it's not really liquid. I mean, at least for a year, two years, five years, whatever the deal might be. It's an alternative investment. This is not money that you want to be sure you have, <laughs> you can afford to lose it, but it also if you know, it could be great upside potential as well. Oh yeah. Can be fantastic. Tell me about curbside real estate. I had no idea physicians needed particular help or specific different <laughs> help with regards to finding homes, but you say they do, and clearly you've made a business out of it. So tell us about how it works. Yeah, I mean, I can just tell you the story of myself and my wife. When we finished our training, we were, you know, in our early thirties. We uh, had been living like a resident and a fellow, and we've been racking up student loan debt and uh, getting paid essentially less than minimum wage. But the cool thing is once we started our jobs, all of a sudden our incomes, you know, it jumped. Um, so we thought, all right, well, it's about time. We kind of got, uh, got along with our life and kind of settled down. And so we wanted to buy a home. That was kind of like the, the dream, I guess. And so we went to go look around for a home and we found one at that time, like a model home that we walked in. We're like, oh, this is perfect. And, you know, we didn't even know how to make, you know, put in an offer, but we kind of started talking to the person there. We put in an offer, they accepted it. And I was like, wow, that's great. And they just told me, okay, well, you just got to go find a loan now. And so I went out there looking for a loan, started talking to people, and one after another, a bank, I mean, every bank said no. I mean, every bank that you can think of out there really just said, look, you're not in the right situation. And the reason was, was that I had high student loan debt. Um, I had just started, I had short work history. So my income had just started, so that wasn't good enough. Um, I didn't have much of a down payment saved. I mean, you can imagine, you're getting paid not that much during residency and fellowship, so it's not like you have a lot saved up. And so for those situations, you know, everyone kind of shut the door in my face. And so we were really disappointed. We thought it was over. And then one of my friends who had bought a home recently said, look, you should look after these, look for a physician loan. And that kind of, you know, I kind of looked at him and I was like, what is a physician home loan? And he said, well, just go look for it. I mean, just go Google it. And so I started researching online and I found that there were these loans available for physicians in my exact situation with lower down payments, you know, with high student loan debt. Um, and a short work history. And so, uh, even that I had to kind of navigate that world. Nobody, there's nobody there to teach you this kind of stuff. And so I, you know, finally figured it out, found somebody to help me. We got into the home. It was a painful process. 
But after doing so, I started telling all my friends and I just, I remember sending like a big blanket email to a bunch of people saying, all right, if you're thinking about buying your home, like, just let me know. I'll just help guide you through it. Cause man, it was a painful process and I want to just kind of spare you the time and energy. And so that's what I did. And next thing you know, their friends of friends started calling me and it just, I mean, people started calling me out of nowhere. And so, uh, I realized this is something that's needed for physicians. They, they, nobody teaches you this stuff in school. You don't know that these options are there. You don't know how to navigate this world. You don't really have the time or energy to do it. So it'd be nice to have somebody to help you. And so that's why I, I kind of, formally or informally put together this service. I mean, I had just got my real estate broker's license at the same time, um, just to kind of do some investments. And yeah, I put this thing together, called it curbside real estate. And next thing you know, um, I don't know, I didn't even advertise or market, but people just started coming to me. And only in the last year or so, you know, once I kind of hit that, you know, a couple hundred, helping a couple hundred people that I decide to start marketing this because I'm like, okay, people need to know about it. Hmm. And yeah, so I put it out there and honestly, that's what we do. It's a free service for physicians. And that's really what I really wanted to do, create a free service for physicians to help navigate this whole world of buying their home. And that's, you know, that really results in me educating them. I connect them to lenders. I connect them to realtors because a lot of them end up relocating to places where, you know, just because your job or your, your residence, your fellowship, places that you don't know anybody. And so we're, we, we just kind of act and help uh, to connect. So you're like the conduit. Do you make a commission when you refer them to banks or real estate agents? Yeah. So with the lending world, that's uh, that gets complicated because of everything that happened in 2008. They make sure that you you kind of have a good separation between brokers and lenders. So, you know, I don't compensate. I don't get compensated on that side to make it clear. But with the realtors, they do pay to be part of our network because they get access to amazing clients. And it's kind of a win for everybody. And yeah, this has been great. I mean, I, and we take most of those proceeds and, and really fund this like social mission that we have. Yeah. Tell me about uh, your social mission. It's a component of curbside and it really focuses on helping less fortunate children all over the world. Tell us about it. Yeah. I mean, when this business started to grow at some point, I had to, re- you know, I got to the point where I was thinking, is, is this actually worth it? Uh, just because it was taking up so much of my time. And, you know, I'm still, I was still acting as a full-time physician. I had a family and, you know, at some point you got to figure out, is this worth it? And, you know, what is the meaning and what am I doing this for? And obviously I was helping physicians and that was, that was a good feeling, but I really wanted to connect it to something bigger. I had just read the book, uh, by Blake Mykoski that, you know, start something that matters by the Tom's founder. Um, yes. you're familiar with those. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, and you know, he built up a for-profit business that, that helped, you know, did a lot of nonprofit good. And I was really motivated by that. And I, I remember thinking, okay, if I'm going to do this and I'm going to grow this business, I want to do something very similar to that or grow that the same. And so, um, I was, you know, searching around and trying to find good outlets for, for our, for our proceeds and funds. And I found it through two different partners. One is, uh, this company called Angel House. And what we do is we take a lot of those proceeds and, you know, it's kind of a home buying thing. And so what we do is we, we buy homes for children. So we build orphanages overseas for children and we, we give them a home. We give them access to education, clean water. And then on the other side, um, with this company, um, we are Zoe. Um, we, uh, help run these academies where kids learn a skilled trade. And so by the end of this, by, by the end of the three-year academy, they're up and running. They're able to sustain themselves in their, in their you know, their other siblings um, with a business and a trade. And so they might, might be like farming or, you know, sewing or these kind of things that they're out there. They're able to kind of really support themselves. And so that's really our passion. And that, that's, the, that's the reason we actually continue to, to, to grow this business and run this business. 
What's next? It sounds so uh, incremental. You've, you know, you started this as an experiment, as out of, from some frustration. It kind of took on a life of its own. You, uh, you know, you seem to, you know, then take the reins and really formalize it. Now you're helping doctors find homes and now you're giving back. I mean, it, it's all, Working out so beautifully <laughs> sounds like it, but to some extent, um, do you feel like you have control now? Like that was what you really wanted, right? That was the kind of the motivation in the beginning was more control over your career. Being an entrepreneur in some ways, there's no control, you know, but uh, <laughs> how do you find that balance and where do you feel now today versus when you were just starting out as far as that control thing goes? Yeah. I mean, it's just been an amazing journey. I mean, it's this part of my brain that I've, you know, haven't used for, I guess when you're in your medical training, you're only on one path and you don't really use maybe this side of your brain, the entrepreneurial side. And it's really sparked this, this really cool spirit in me. And I've, I've loved it. And the cool thing is now through all my different ventures, I actually have the option to not work in medicine. Uh, it's actually given me an income outside of it where I can work, I can be a physician just out of choice. And so people all the time ask me, they go, um, you know, when are you going to retire? <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, I tell them, look, I'm, I'm actually working as much as I want to work right now. Uh, I don't work full time. I've cut down. My wife, who's also a physician, she's also cut down. And we really work uh, at a pace and as much as we really want uh, because we love it. And I think that that was the goal. And uh, it's just amazing to have kind of reached that goal. And I don't know where it will take me from here, but I'm just trying to live the life that I, you know, want right now. And, um, and I'm now I'm trying to teach other people how to do the same. And that's kind of how Passive Income MD, that website got started. Uh, just for me to put information out there for physicians to, to think like this, to, to really help them, uh, understand that, you know, there are solutions to the feeling of burnout, to the feeling like, you know, it's, uh, you're not in control that if you do create these other sources of income, uh, you can really take your career back and really practice on your own terms. And that's, that's been the goal. And so I'm just going to continue to build that, continue to build curbside, uh, try to enjoy life with my family and friends. And, and that's about it. Be a physician by choice. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, we take it for granted. Like, of course you want to be a doctor. It's not an easy road. I didn't become a doctor for a lot of reasons, <laughs> but mainly because like, I didn't want to be in school for so long. And also I'm not, yeah. that, I'm not that smart. Like I could not get through oh, all please. of it. Oh, come on. My brain is not, it's not, no, I know my strengths and weaknesses. I, I listen to your podcast. <laughs> I, I, I learn a lot from your podcast. I'm also so. really afraid of blood. So that's all those things <laughs> together. No, Farnu should be not, should not be a doctor. But um, I have so much respect respect and admiration for physicians because I know it's a hard road. I know that it's a, it's just such a selfless, you know, position to be in that it breaks my heart that, you know, that financially it's not rewarding. Um, and a lot of them are still struggling with the loans that they take on from school. I mean, it's just, it doesn't, it's not right, you know? Um, so I, I love what you're doing, trying to open up um, doctor's eyes and potential to say, you know, you can do this, but there's another way to build wealth. And we need to keep good doctors in their roles because that is important. Tell me a little bit about your financial upbringing. So you did talk about your father and how he was a doctor as well, and but didn't really instill in you kind of these entrepreneurial ways or wealth building ways, but was there a memory from childhood growing up that really has stuck with you that it was a money memory? 
Well, yes. Uh, I think I, I remember my, uh, father, and this is not even when I was too young, but I remember him stressing him out about a situation where, you know, he had gotten himself into a bad deal. I think he had, uh, invested with a friend. <laughs> he invested with a friend and, uh, a few things happened where, uh, things didn't turn out like he wanted. And so it kind of put a really, a little bit of financial stress on the family. I remember that. Um, again, he didn't really involve me, my mom and, and my father didn't really involve me in, in, uh, financial kind of matters. I guess they didn't want me to be stressed out about it. They didn't want me to think about it. And I, I give them all the credit for that. I think they just wanted me to live my life and, and just, just do the best I could. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I remember them going through that because I, they were just visibly stressed. And I remember trying to get in on the conversation and ask them, you know, who was it? <laughs> uh, what did they do? Um, and, and these kind of things. And so I kind of revisited this years later, but I could kind of understand a little bit more about finances. I went back to my father to ask him about the situation. Turns out, yeah, he had invested with a friend. He, there was nothing on paper, uh, which is crazy. Uh, it was a good amount of cash and, uh, yeah, he just lost it all. And, um, and it was part of his, as part of it was his fault. He didn't know what he was getting himself invested in. It was a real estate deal, but he had really no understanding of it. And, you know, that really got me determined to say, look, in the future for me, I do invest with some friends on occasion, but we make sure we do it right. We put everything on paper. Everything's laid out. Every, everybody understands. And I make sure I don't put myself in that same situation that my dead father was in. How did he deal with it? Do you remember seeing his reaction? Yeah, he was stressed. And to, to be honest, he, he lost a friend. And to me, that's kind of the saddest thing. Um, I, I, I was actually friends with, uh, mm. you know, with his son. And so it, it's just, it's kind of sad to see those things happen. And I know that to this day, he kind of uh, mourns the loss of the friendship, probably more than he does, obviously, the, the money. But it, it's kind of see the, sad to see those things happen. Yeah. Wow. That's a powerful memory. We uh, have this great sponsor, Chase Slate, for our podcast, and they recently did a study on spending and sharing the spend. And they found that a lot of people, particularly millennials, over 75% of them shared recently a purchase on social media. So I want to ask guests, what is a purchase that you recently made? Maybe it was a real estate venture that you shared and doesn't have to have happened on, it doesn't have to have happened on Instagram, but you know, that you shared either with your community, your family, your friends, online, offline. But you know, the point is you were really excited about it. So you wanted to, to share it. Okay. For me, I'll, I'll share what I purchased recently. Um, I, I like to share <laughs> pictures of food. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's one thing I, my wife and I, we, we really, I think we're pretty good with our spending. Um, I don't think we need particularly lavish goods. Uh, my, my wife likes some, you know, she likes fashion and that sort of thing. But one thing we will spend money on is, is experiences. And we consider food a part of that. And so we love to have really cool food experiences and, and try different things. And so that often gets shared uh, on social media for us. All right. Um, okay. So, Peter, are you ready for some so many fill in the blanks? This is when I start a question and then you just finish it. Oh, sure. First thing that comes to mind. All right. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say you won $100 million. The first thing I would do is? Um, I would definitely take my whole family on a huge trip around the world. My parents have retired recently. They deserve a big trip. I'm going to send them anyways, but I'd love to go on it with them. 
Nice. Um, do you travel with your family? I mean, what are those trips? Do you ever travel with your family? Yeah, we do. My wife and I, uh, we've actually traveled without the kids a few times this year already. Luckily, we have some very supportive and loving in-laws. That's nice. We're willing to take care of our kids. We have an almost five-year-old and a two-year-old. But we also take trips with the kids as well. I mean, we try not to travel too far. It's not easy. So most of those are local type trips. But I live in California, so there are a lot of awesome places to go to within driving distance. One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is... I definitely get help for some of the businesses that I do. Um, I think as a solo entrepreneur, oftentimes you, you feel like you have to take care of everything. But I learned the hard way that you need to start outsourcing these things. So for my businesses, I have hired virtual assistants. I do have a business manager now uh, and also a personal assistant on that side to help me out. So that has changed my world. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is... The one thing I wish when I learned when I was younger was that uh, you don't need to be an hourly worker. You don't need to trade time for money. Um, there are ways to be smarter and work smarter, not necessarily harder. And I think that ultimately ends up in financial freedom. And that's uh, something I've had to learn along the way. Last but not least, I'm Peter Kim, Dr. Peter Kim. I'm so money because... I'm so money because I'm living my ideal life and career today and trying to help others do the same. Thank you, Peter. I'm so glad you're not anonymous anymore. The world needs to know more about you and your good work and your mission to help doctors and really everyone along the way to learn how to, I love your mission, to try to find an extra revenue stream or two or 10 so that if your day job, it's not adding up, that you can maybe still pursue that with some flexibility, ease of mind, breathing room. So thank you very much. Great. Thanks for having me. You can learn more about Peter by visiting PassiveIncomeMD.com as well as CurbsideRealEstate.com. Peter's on Twitter at PassiveIncomeMD. If you missed any of this, just head over to SoMoneyPodcast.com. We've got the transcript, the audio, and so much more for you there. If you want to leave me a question for our Friday episodes, just click on Ask Farnoosh and we're connected. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope your day is so money. So Money.